Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited for you to be joining me on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Today, I am joined by Derwin Gray, who has uh, recently released a brand new book called Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, a Gospel Vision of Love, Grace, and Reconciliation in a Divided World. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Derwin here in a few minutes. But if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I just want to let you know kind of the purpose of this podcast. And really what we want to do here is create a safe place for difficult conversations and to create a place to where you can maybe listen in on some conversations that maybe you don't feel like you get the chance to have with anyone else. And so that's what we do here on the Learner's Corner podcast. And it's also a podcast for lifelong learners. You know, if you've been listening for a while, you know, one of the mantras, you know, around here is that we can learn from anyone and everyone from anything and everything. And that's what we do here. And uh, before we get into the interview today, uh, I do want to do uh, two quick things. Uh, one, I want to give a couple of quick shout outs and a couple of quick thank yous to Garrett Older, who edits the podcast, and Sam Massey, who has created the awesome music for this podcast. And the second thing that I want to do is that uh, today we're going to introduce a couple of new segments, one here in kind of the intro segment and then one at the end. Uh, And I want to give you a recommended resource. If you are a longtime listener of the Learner's Corner podcast, you know that we uh, did this for, uh, we did this many episodes ago and today we are bringing it back. And then uh, at the end of the episode, I want to tell you something uh, that Just my conversation with Derwin has started making me uh, think about a little bit more. But today, the recommended resource that I want to tell you about is actually a book that I recently finished reading here, and it's called The Warmth of Other Sons, and it's by Isabel Wilkerson. And uh, the book is just to tell you a little bit about it. It's about the decades-long migration of Black citizens who fled the South for northern and western cities in search of a better life. And it covers the span of of, of about a 65-year time period and really gives a lot of insight into what happened there um, in in literally, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the migration of, um, of Black citizens, of Black people, Black men and women from the South to the North and even out to the West. And it's really, it's a time period that I honestly did not know a lot about. And it's a, it is a very informative read. But one of the things that has just really stuck with me from this podcast, or not from this podcast, from this book uh, that I want to read you is uh, this paragraph, which is about riots during that time period that I mentioned earlier. And it is, it has really expanded my perspective and, and even, um, it's just helped me learn more, especially in light of all of, all of the, uh, events that have happened in our country over, over the last year. And so I want to read you this part that really stood out to me and has, uh, deepened my perspective, or I don't know if deepened is the right word, but it's definitely widened my perspective on it. And so Isabel writes, contrary to modern assumptions for much of the history of the United States, riots were often carried out by disaffected whites against groups perceived as threats to their survival. Thus, riots would become to the North what lynchings were to the South. And that is really the part that really stood out to me because uh, I had never really thought of it that way or I'd never been exposed to that type of thinking before. And so she continues and says, each was a display of uncontained rage by put upon, put upon people directed toward the scapegoats of their condition. Nearly every big northern city experienced one or more during the 20th century. Reading this made me want to go and ask, okay, so what, what was a riot around me? And uh, I live uh, near Canton, Ohio, and not too far from Canton is Cleveland. And so it made me go and investigate, okay, what really happened here? And I discovered about the Howe riots, uh, which were taking place in there uh, in 1968, uh, in, in July of 1968. 
and just learning more about that. And so this is a book that has it has just expanded my perspective and helped and has really just made me think a whole lot. And so that's my recommended resource for this week, The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Now, that's not all that we have for you on the podcast today. Today, as I mentioned earlier, I am honored to be joined by Derwin Gray. And if you're not familiar with Derwin, Derwin is the founding and lead pastor of Transformation Church, one of the fastest growing churches in America. Transformation Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational mission-shaped community with three campuses near Charlotte, North Carolina. And Derwin is also the author of several books, The Limitless Life, the High Definition Leader, which has been uh, re, re, uh, revised and updated into the book that we're going to talk a little bit about today, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, and his book, The Good Life. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Derwin Gray. Well, Derwin, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you, Caleb. I appreciate it. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you about is, you know, you're a former NFL player as well. And I'm just curious to know how has your, or how did your experience in the NFL, how has that shaped you and formed you? And how do you take some of the stuff that you've learned from the NFL and apply it to who you are today. Yeah, man. So, you know, in, in God's providence, uh, he does, he does not waste a thing. And so in football, um, it actually shapes my spiritual formation mm. and, uh, how I pastor immensely. And so as it pertains to the spiritual formation, um, you know, um, discipline, sacrifice, understanding that the vision is bigger than you, understanding that you have a role to play. So all those things in the gospel is God's kingdom is bigger than me. It was God's grace that drafted me. And so my spiritual disciplines and growth is not just for me, but it's for the betterment of the body of Christ. So football helped me with that. As far as leadership and pastoring, oh man, it, it has just been incredible. So one of the, one of the things I thought was really weird is when you become a Christian, uh, it, it's very consumeristic. You know, it's like, well, pastor, I don't like this. and Pastor, I don't like that. And and it was like, hold on, hold on a minute. As a football player, if you tell the coach, this isn't what I like, then you're kind of like not on the team anymore, right? And so what I learned from the NFL is you have a vision. Where do we want to go? You have a strategy. Here's how you get here. You have practice and technique to learn how to do your job. Thirdly, you realize that the team is more important than you, you are. And then you go about trying to accomplish that. And so from a high school coach, I learned the power of vision casting. From my college coach, I learned the power of delegation. And from one of my NFL co co coaches, I learned the power of organization, but also within a football team, right? There's diversity. You have the big guys. They're the offensive linemen, defensive linemen. Then, you, then you've got linebackers and running backs. Then you got wide receivers and then you got defensive backs. Can you imagine having a football team with all offensive linemen? No. Well, having a homogeneous church is like having a church that has just one type of player and you need the entire body. You need that diversity. And so ethnic diversity is God's idea because God himself is an eternal community of unity and diversity within the Godhead. And so when you look around at ethnic diversity, that's not something to be colorblind to, but to be color blessed to. You look around and you look at the diversity of culture you don't want to mute culture. You want to add culture to the local church. And so football shaped me tons, right? And 
within this good news of the gospel, um, you have the owner, the father, son, and the spirit. Then you've got coaches and the staff. So that's the pastoral staff. The congregation is the team to join Jesus in the great commandment and the great commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, something about bringing culture to the local church. Can you just expound on that a little bit more of kind of what that looks like? Yeah, culture culture has various definitions, but what I mean by that in the church is every person that walks through the door, every person that becomes a part of that community has a cultural context that they come from. And oftentimes, particularly in majority culture churches, minorities are told, bring your color, but leave your culture. And what I'm saying is, no, God wants to us to bring our culture together and flavor it up, man. It's like a salad. I mean, can you imagine just eating a salad that's just all lettuce? I mean, you need to mix all the ingredients together, and then the salad dressing is like what makes it all work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can't help but notice you seem to be, and even you know, hearing this conversation and even just other uh, sermons that I've that I've listened to you. You're really good about creating very uh, easy to understand analogies whenever it comes to communicating different things. What what do you think? Is that something that just has come naturally? Is it that something that like you've had to work at? Uh, I would say it's a part of having the gift to teach. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, I would say it is a desire to love people so that they can love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And number three, um, I think that it is something that you work at, that you think about, that you're intentional. One of my very early prayers uh, when I came to faith was based off of Ezra 7.10, you know, to to know the law, obey the law, to teach the law, right? So um, to know Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to show Jesus. And I, I wanted to be able to preach and teach to anybody from any ethnic background, gender, or social economic class, believer or unbeliever, and God has um, God has honored that. Mm. And so, an illustration is like looking into a window. Mm. Say say more about kind of what that what maybe that preparation process looks like for you whenever you're communicating and thinking through. And how how can I do my best to speak to everybody in the audience instead of just the people who who look like you or look like me? Yeah, you know, um, I'm at a place now to where where God has been gracious, where I automatically think of the other. So Philippians two three says, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves." And so that's a primary text that Paul used to get the Jews and Gentiles of Philippi to love each other as the new people of God. And so my interpretive and communication framework is always, who are the people listening? God, give me a heart for them like you have for for, for them. Then that way I can communicate in ways that they can understand. But also when I do that, when I give that emotional energy, it actually grows me. Me reaching the other brings out more of who I'm created to be. Hmm. Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, you know, so I think a lot of evangelicalism has turned into either a moralistic code of do's and don'ts, or it's turned into pithy self-help statements. And either way, it's a Christless Christianity. Hmm. And what I mean by Christless Christianity Um, preaching is not how we can use Jesus. Preaching should be about how we can worship Jesus. And through our worship and beholding him, he transforms us to become like him. And so in my preparation, in my preaching, when I reach the other, God gives me even more grace. God makes me more of myself when I'm willing to join him in loving others. Mm. So, 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 um, 
I'm not sure who this is for, and I don't want this to come across arrogant, but I do want it to be prophetic. Some people like preaching because of what they get out of it. Hmm. Some people like preaching because they're good at at it. I want to preach as an act of worship so others can know, go, and grow and in Christ. Hmm. I think that's a big difference. Yeah, I was going to say, talk. Talk more and expand on, like, how, how do you know for yourself whether you are preaching as a form of worship as opposed to preaching for your own benefit and maybe even for your own glory? Um, well, that's a great question. I'm kind of, I've kind of been doing it for a while now. Let me, um, I think when I'm preaching for my own benefit or own glory, I'm pretty much worried about what other people are going to think about what I'm preaching. Yeah. It makes me less courageous. It makes me more thoughtful on, am I going to offend this person? Uh, what, are, what are they thinking about this? And so that's one of the ways where I can know I'm not in a helpful spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, one, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, uh, as it pertains to your background. And then I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, building a meth- multi-ethnic church, which is getting ready to come out uh, here pretty soon, is, uh, you know, you've been trained by, you know, Dr. Norman Geisler and even Dr. Scott McKnight as well. And I'm yeah. curious to know, what are, what are some of the things, either uh, theological or even just in discipleship or even just life in general, that you've taken away from them, or could be other people who were very formative uh, in your background, that you still use the stuff that you learned on a daily basis. What would those oh, things yeah. be? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, Dr. Geisler, uh, the late great Storm and Norman Geisler, I used to call him Yoda. <laughs> um, with Dr. Geisler, like we started off as friends. The first time we met, we talked. This was back in 2001. Like we talked theology for like three hours. It was incredible. So, 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 so here's what I gleaned from Dr. Geisler is he taught me Thomistic philosophy and Thomistic philosophy really teaches you how to think, not what to think, but how to think. Um, He taught me um, classical apologetics, which has just been invaluable. It has just been incredible. Um, thirdly, he he taught me what a long, enduring, faithful marriage looks like. Hmm. You know, he was married to his wife for over 60 years. Uh, fourthly, uh, he taught me you don't retire, you refire. Hmm. And there, like Dr. Geisler was teaching up into a few months before he passed away. And so uh, when, when uh, I was ordained in the ministry, uh, there were three other pastors and Dr. Geisler. So the three other pastors were asking me questions and Dr. Geisler waited to go last. And he just launched into it. And for about 20 minutes straight, we just went back and forth with theology and doctrine and the doctrine of salvation, doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of God. And then he goes, I'm done. And the other pastors just, just went, oh my gosh, that is robust. And so that was absolutely incredible. And then um, with with Scott McKnight being a renowned New Testament scholar, what Scott did is Scott really helped me learn to go back to the first century Second Temple Jewish world, Mm -hmm. to really go back to what was this world like when Jesus walked it, when the early church emerged. And so what he's been able to do is really anchor me in a depth and an, and, and, and an understanding of the New Testament and the understanding of what, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, Lord is king. He is, he is king over all. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so he's really helped with uh, painting a bigger picture of the gospel, that the gospel is not just 
soteriology, what happened at the cross and resurrection. The gospel is Jesus himself embodied the good news of God himself. The good news is I'm showing you what you were meant to be, and then I'm going to die and raise again so you can become that as a part of my family. And so that's been really good. And, and Scott McKnight has opened my eyes to like N.T. Wright and yeah. Michael Bird. And so, yeah, you know, I, because typically a Norman Geisler view and a Scott McKnight view are within the same body of Christ, of course, but different emphasis. Yeah. And so I think what uh, they have allowed me to become and do is I can have the mind of a philosopher the understanding of the New Testament, but the heart of a pastor. Mm-hmm. That's really good. There's, there's a couple of things in there that I want to dig down a little bit deeper and ask you about. Um, you, you had mentioned uh, about the, what you learned from Dr. Geisler is the difference between you know what to think versus how to think. Um, mm-hmm. What what would you say are some of the things that like that you would say? Hey, if you if you want to learn how to think better. These might be a couple of things that help with that. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to take an introduction into logic. Mm. And I know there's a lot of Christians who go, well, God isn't logical. And I would say you just made a logical statement. (laughs) So um, taking logic, I didn't like it at first until I began to see the benefits. Is it helped me become a better listener? and a better thinker. And when I mean thinker, I don't mean just I'm smart, but how to navigate life, how to listen to people, how to help people. But also in our day and age where there's so much skepticism, there's so much questions, is simply learning how to think will help you process things. And so it's not only just in theology or philosophy, uh, but in common everyday world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other, or one of the other things, uh, that you mentioned was that you learned from him was, uh, retire or don't retire, refire. Can you talk yeah. more about that? Well, I, I mean, he, he, he wrote over a hundred and some books and he passed away in his eighties and he was still teaching. He was still lecturing. He was still traveling. He was still speaking. I mean, we would talk every few months and he was traveling and doing his thing before COVID hit. And so, you, you know, um, Dr. Geisler really modeled a life of faithfulness and a life of tenacity. And he wanted to evangelize the world and he wanted to defend the Christian faith. And um, I am a better man as a result of, of it. I am in gra- I am indebted to, um, Dr. Geisler. Hmm. Uh, you know, you're, as you mentioned, you're also a pastor of Transformation Church as well. And one of the things that uh, I haven't had the pleasure of being there, but maybe once COVID uh, comes down, I'll be able to swing by sometime. But uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I absolutely love is your guys' vision for it of, you know, multi-ethnic and multi-generational and that seems to be something that was very true since the beginning. And I would love to hear what what is the the story or the series of events that led you to to start with that idea of being multi ethnic and multi generational from the beginning yeah, of Transformation yeah, man, Church. Jesus. It's Jesus, and so Jesus was asked, "What's the most important commandments?" And he said, "Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So upward, love God completely. Inward, love yourself correctly. Outward, love your neighbors compassionately. So in response to God's love, we love him back. We grow in loving ourselves. And then we love our neighbor. Well, who is our neighbor going to be? Multi-ethnic, multi-generational. So our vision is built on the great commandment and great commission. I think every church in the world should have a vision of the great commandment and great commission. And wouldn't it be beautiful if we had churches filled with people who love God themselves and their neighbors who were multi-ethnic and multi-generational, 
and you're compelled by the mission of Jesus to go make disciples of all ethnos. That's not only people across the street, but that's people, I mean, not only people across the sea, but people across the street. And so to be multi-ethnic is not optional. And we're to teach them all that the Lord commanded that they may obey it. And what did God command? All of God's command can be summed up in love God, love your neighbors, love yourself. So it's this eternal flywheel of worship, evangelism, and mission. Yeah. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case for a lot of people too. Any, any, any thoughts on where the disconnect happens on that? Oh yeah. The devil. Yeah. I mean, there are dark demonic (laughs) influences, um, the world, the flesh, the devil, right? So there are ways that we get distracted and sin is basically, I think something else is going to make me happier than Jesus. So I'm going to pursue that. And then I think there's a lot of preaching and teaching that's Christless. There's, there's no high exaltation of Jesus and his grace. You know, it's, you know, it's, hey, uh, do these five things for a good marriage. Do these four things to alleviate stress. Or it's railing against the culture. Or it's the pros- prosperity gospel where Jesus is a genie in a bottle. You know, ask and make your wish, and it's his command. And so I think we need to get back to Christ being at the center of Christianity. His life, his death, his resurrection, the sending of the Spirit to form us into a people that image forth his glory. And that's such a that's such a fascinating idea that I hadn't put the two together, but it makes perfect sense of the reason why we don't pursue the, the multi-ethnic and the multi-generational is because it's Christless. Just any other thoughts on that? And if not, that's okay. Yeah, I, you know, um, also, um, I think pastors need to be equipped and trained. Um, a lot of what I learned about the multi-ethnic church was not through my master's under Dr. Geisler. It was reading the New Testament. It was Mm. other resources. And so there's a lot of pastors who don't even know that the solution to ethnic unity is the good news of Jesus. Like, it's kind of like, well, the gospel is Jesus died for sins. You go to, you go to heaven instead instead of hell, the racism thing, we're not really sure what to do. And Ephesians 2, 14 and 16 is very clear. Christ is our peace. Uh, He tore down a dividing wall, uh, counseled the law and its regulations through his death on the cross. You know, he made the two into one. So there, so the, the Jesus not only forgives our sins, but he puts us in a family with brothers and sisters with different colored skins. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, have you read N.T. Wright's How God Became King? Yep. I was going to say, it. that's what, that just what you're talking about, that's the idea that came to mind is we forget the kingship in that. Yeah. I, I mean, but how can you have a king when you preach a user-friendly Jesus? Mm. So, you know, just take a cursory listen to some of the most popular sermons that you'd hear from the most popular preachers, and it's very consumptive. It's what it's what God can do for you to kind of fix your life. It's not Jesus is king. Oh, let me preach for a minute. Yeah. Not that Jesus is king and we get to participate by grace in his life, in his kingdom for his glory. Like Jesus is not a butler. And I think that's why there's so little power in the American church. Jesus is not a butler. He is a king. And I don't care how big your church is, if you got campuses all over the world, all over the country, but yet, but yet evangelicalism is a mess. We have no answer for white nationalism. We have no answer for the U.S. Capitol. We have no answer to racism. But hey, I got a lot of campuses and our music is cool. No, I'm with it. You can keep preaching. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, you, uh, I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you've you've written this book, uh, and it came out several years ago called "The High Definition Leader," yeah. and it's getting ready to. Uh, by, by the time that this episode is out, the book will have been re-released. But it's building a multi-ethnic church, and I'm just curious and just wondering, what are maybe some of the things that between between releases that you decided, hey. 
because of because of the time, because of the moment that we're in, I needed to add this or dive deeper into this whenever it comes to uh, the book being re-released. Yeah. So in 2015, the book was called The High Definition Leader, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church in a Multi-Ethnic World. Cool title, but it didn't explain what the book meant. Also in 2015, uh, I don't think my white brothers and sisters were ready for it. Mm. I think in 2015, it was like, yeah, multi-ethnic church, man, that's cool. Seems like a cool thing to do. But I think from 2016 to 2021, America has changed. Racial division, the church had no answer. And so uh, my publisher, um, Thomas Nelson, we were were like, well, let's add some new material. Let's change the title. The title now is Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, a Gospel Vision of Love, Grace, and Reconciliation in a Divided World. Let's make it crystal clear. And so now... Um, I think people are ready to listen. I think the eight minutes and 46 seconds that the man's, that the police officer's knee was on George Floyd's neck uh, really awakened my white brothers and sisters in Christ to say, wait a minute, this is, there's more here. And then when you see protests in Germany all throughout Europe, okay, like something's going on. And here's the thing. Followers of Jesus, we should have been leading the way. We should have been leading the way. And I think that young Gen Z and younger millennials and boomers who don't want to do the church growth thing anymore are saying, hey, does Jesus care about this? What does the gospel say about this? And so building a multi-ethnic church is my attempt to um, give the theology of ethnic reconciliation through Christ, and then practices. So a pastor, church leaders, and well-informed Christians can grab this book, read a theology of the Apostle Paul, practices to go implement it and do. One of my prayers for this book is that thousands of churches, thousands of pastors, informed elders, deacons, and lay folks will read this book, immerse this in this book, and number one, they're going to fall deeper in love with Jesus. What we hear over and over is this. How could I have read the book of Ephesians and never seen this? How? Number two, that it gives pastors a roadmap to drive on to transition their church or to plant a multi-ethnic church. Number three, that it gives the practices of actually how to do it. Now, I can't give you courage to do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You know, it's like when I used to coach ball, I would I would tell the kids, listen, I can teach you how to tackle, but I can't give you the courage to tackle. Mm-hmm. Well, this book uh, teaches us how to tackle division to create unity, but only the Holy Spirit can give us courage to do it. I also added about 15% new material, but this 15% is dynamite. It is explosive. Uh, We're getting under the hood of some things because the multi-ethnic church movement has come a long way since 2015, but there are some elements that are unhealthy that we need to get back on track. Hmm. Can can you, uh, obviously don't want to give the whole book away, but can you expound a little bit on the unhealthy elements that you were talking about? Yeah. So within the multi-ethnic church movement, 90% of the pastors are white. Mm. And so what so so basically what you have is people of color connecting with white congregations, but you don't have white people connecting with congregations of color. Also, what, what, what you have is what the 90% of those congregations that are led by white pastors in a multi-ethnic church, um, say if there's a political unrest or if there is things that Latinos and African-Americans and Asians care about, it's not being discussed because the interpretive framework is simply from a white majority culture framework. And so what I try to do is to help my white brothers and sisters expand their lens 
but also don't just delegate tasks to minorities, share power. Hmm. And then I want to encourage white folks, like go, go try a church of color or plan a multi-ethnic church. I actually think the future of the multi-ethnic church is church planning. Hmm. What, what makes you say that? Uh, well, because I think that for churches that have been around for a long time, it's really going to be hard to change. There's going to be some people who don't want to change. And sadly, uh, within evangelicalism, if you start, if people start leaving and taking their money with them, then sometimes pastors don't want to walk into that. Whereas I would encourage pastors, listen, if people are leaving because you're talking about unity in the gospel between ethnicities and Christ for his glory and they leave, leave. God is going to provide. <laughs> That's good. Whenever it comes to, you know, pursuing this journey of unity and, and, uh, and multi-ethnic multi-ethnicity that you were talking about, where, where are some of the things that you see that people tend to get tripped up on whenever it comes to it or the pitfall or the pitfalls that they fall into? <laughs> oh gosh, man. Well, the first <laughs> one is, uh, is politics. Mm. It's uh, it's uh, people interpret the Bible through their favorite political uh, cable news show. Mm. And so that's the first problem. What we say at Transformation Church is this. We're not the party of the elephant. We're not the party of the donkey. We're the party of the lamb, which means we have to be prophetic to the donkey and the elephant. Like vote, yes, vote, 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 but understand your allegiance is to Jesus. Number two, the other hangup that I see is that oftentimes um, it's hard for people of color to express their frustrations, their fears, things that have happened to them because white brothers and sisters will say, well, no, that's not true. America doesn't have problems. Nope, that's just not true. And it's like, well, first of all, your allegiance. <clears throat> is to your brother and sister in Christ, not America. And what I found is oftentimes people will attach their identity to the United States of America instead of Christ. And so it's like a family with dysfunction. Don't talk about the dysfunction, but it's bad. Well, because our identity is not in Christ, we can talk about how the past got us to where we are. Mm -hmm. And for white brothers and sisters, you shouldn't feel guilty about past systemic racial sins. But in order for unity to take place, you have to acknowledge that you benefited from those things. Even me as a black man, where my home sits, the Catawba Native Americans ruled this land for centuries, maybe thousands of years. But they're not here anymore. I own a home on what used to be their land. So what should I do? Should I feel guilty? No, I should mourn and go, man, that'll never happen again on my watch because I love Christ. Yeah. Um, you know, thirdly, there's a lack of discipleship. Typically, our discipleship is very individualistic instead of holistic. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I want to dig down a little bit deeper you were on the politics part that you were talking about. What are, what are maybe some signs that maybe we can uh, maybe self-diagnose ourselves if we've attached our identity more towards politics than Christ? Defensiveness. Hmm. If you are defensive, if someone uh, asks you a question, if you're defensive, if you find yourself ranting on, on Facebook about the other party, if you identify yourself primarily as a Republican or Democrat, um, those are some things. If you're unable to think beyond the political category classes, like for example, um, every born again believer that I know, and this isn't a universal study, this is from my experience, who vote Democrat are pro-life. They are not for abortion. They are pro-life. And so they want to be in that party to influence that party, but they also understand that there are more reasons 
um, um, that, that, that moves a man or woman to keep their child. And so things like health insurance, things like better education. I mean, there, there's a whole litany of things that we can do. We can advocate for cheaper adoption. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you hear things like, well, if you vote for a Democrat, you can't be a Christian. Um, but yet we have Christians on the right who seem to not care about the morality of a president except for starting in 2016. Research shows that for evangelicals, their views on the morality of the president changed when Donald Trump got in office. That's an example. And so I don't care how a person votes. Just make sure your allegiance is to Jesus and you're not demonizing brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, either, I don't know if it would be systems or practices that that you've put in place at Transformation Church to make sure that multi-ethnicity is something that continues to remain for years to come? We teach the Bible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. We teach the Bible. Um, we, we are also prayerful. Uh, we are inclusive of all the people that God have brought to us, whether if they're a, uh, Indian Asian or East Asian, whether they're Latino or Black or white, uh, all are precious in God's sight. And so uh, our systems and our processes, like when we launch our small groups, we make sure that they're multi-ethnic, multi-generational. We want people with gray hair to know <clears throat> that they matter. The gray hair people matter too. Um, you know, we, we want their wisdom. We want their presence. Well, what are some of the, I don't know if benefit is the right word, but what's, what's some of the benefits that uh, you've seen Transformation Church experience because you as a community have chosen the multi-ethnic and the multi-generational path that maybe that maybe other churches don't experience. Yeah, you know, we uh, uh, long before there was a shooting in Charlotte in protest, we had built relationships with the police department. Um, people know in our area if there's a tragedy from the schools, they come to us. We have um, we have partnered and adopted eight public schools, and so. They come to us for, for tutoring. They come to us for counseling. Uh, we have opened what's called a Hope Dealers Market, where since COVID, we have made over 200,000 meals. Um, wow. We paid off $4 million of medical debt for people in the state of South Carolina. And so our diversity has been, has been an engine of gospel innovation. What do you feel? often doesn't get like either a lot of airtime or talked about a whole lot whenever it comes to multi-ethnicity? You know, I mean, I haven't really thought about that question because at the end of the day, I'm more concerned about what Jesus says. People's opinion change directions like the wind, but the word is eternal. He is eternal. And that's where I want my gaze to be. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is maybe what are what are some of the the most important things or the habits or or practices that you do that help you be Derwin at your best? Yeah, number one is pray, man. Pray, 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 pray. The Lord's prayer um, roots me and grounds me in the supremacy and goodness of God and His grace. Uh, spending time in scripture, soaking myself in scripture, making sure I have a Sabbath. Typically, Fridays are my Sabbath. I'm resting. I'm fishing. I'm in community. Um, my wife and I are best friends. Um, and here's the deal, man. Like, here's the deal. For you are saved by grace and faith, not of yourselves. These you should boast. It's it's difficult to think too much of yourself when you realize how much Christ has done for you. That's good. What, uh, 
man, what help what helps you maintain that perspective? I mean, life. Like you get you 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 get you get punched in the in the nose, man. You start thinking that you are above and beyond that. You know, it's one of these things where, like, I don't even think in those terms. Um, I just I just want to abide in Him. Hmm. I just I just want to keep my gaze on Him. I want to just rest in Him. Yeah. What what's something or it could be could be multiple things that uh, that you've learned in maybe the last year or two that have really been profound or impactful for you? Uh, adversity is God's university, hmm. and so COVID, it's you know, I think COVID revealed to us what we really believe about God and His kingdom and His purpose. And I think there was a reckoning for a lot of people to go, oh, I've been wanting to do a Christianity where God's kind of like my butler. And I think God is revealing, no, Christ is king, your subject and servant, your family and friend, and his ministry and mission is now yours wherever you find yourself. That's good. Any final word before we we sign off, or any final thoughts that you got, Derwin? Uh, no, man. I, I um I would I would just say uh, I I appreciate your question, and for and for the listener. Yeah. Um. So often we 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 think about how we failed, how we've accomplished, what we have to do. Uh, what we don't need to do. And all those things are important. They are. But they're of secondary importance. A first importance is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Revelation says that before the foundations of the world, God was slain. And so the blood of Jesus was applied to us in eternity for past, present, future sins that we spend too much time on what we should do and not do and not enough time on what he's done. And the more we spend time on what he's done, the more we fall in love with him, the more we treasure him, the more we adore him. And, and here's the, and here's the thing, Jesus doesn't need us to adore him. Like he's not going, Oh, adore me. I'm insecure. Our adoration of Jesus is for us. Because God has wired us to image forth and reflect what we worship. That's all I got. No, oh, that's so good. I know that people are going to continue to learn from you. I mean, you got uh, so many books coming out. It seems like, I mean, you got The Good Life, which is right behind you. You got, um, you know, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, which is coming out. And then you also got another book this fall, yeah. which is coming out about prayer. So yeah. Where's where's the best place for people to go to keep up with you to find the books? Derwin L, go to Derwin L. Gray online. I'm sorry, DerwinLGray.com. DerwinLGray.com. That's gray with an A. That'll take you to the books. That'll take you to the podcast. That'll take you to Transformation Church. And I would love to serve everybody that's listening. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. All right, Caleb. Take care, man. Peace out. As I mentioned in the intro, you know, we're introducing a couple of new segments today. And uh, after my conversation with Derwin, here's what has got me thinking about that. And it's what he said uh, in kind of the beginning part of it. He talked about the power of considering other people whenever it comes to how we speak. And just as I started thinking about it, I started thinking about, you know, three, three different approaches that we can have whenever it comes to, you know, how how we consider other people and and how we communicate. And I think the first approach is that we can take the approach of well, I don't really care if what I say offends someone as long as I speak truth to that person. And we focus more on the message behind that we focus more on well, hey, it's just more important that I tell this person the truth about their situation or whatever it might be. And I think the second one is is that and Derwin, you know, talked about this some as well, is that I don't want to speak truth if it offends someone, that if it offends the person that I'm talking with. 
And that can be uh, a dangerous path as well because we can neglect to tell people things that, that they need to hear because if they don't hear them, they might be harmful. But really what I think has most challenged me is this third approach. And it's, I want to speak so that they can hear truth. Because in the first perspective, we just more care about us telling the truth. In the second perspective, or in the second, um, in the second situation or the second stance, is you know, I we're afraid to speak the truth because we don't want to burn the relationship. And I think in the third one, it captures the I want to speak the truth, but I still want to have a relationship with this person. And so what it got me thinking about is this quote that you know my dad uh, tells me a lot. or He doesn't just tell me this. He just says it a lot. And it's, you know, we want to build a relational bridge strong enough to bear the weight of truth. We want to develop such good relationships with people that we can speak truth into their lives, but we can speak the truth in love. We can speak a truth in the way that it doesn't harm the relationship. And so... And it just got me thinking of how do you build a relational bridge? And I'm sure there's a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that I was just thinking about is that I think it begins with listening to someone's story instead of trying to tell people about the truth. I think the best way to tell someone about the truth is by starting by listening to someone else's story. Because I think that informs how we communicate to that person. And so that's something that my conversation with Derwin got me thinking about. If something really stood out to you from my conversation with Derwin, I would love to hear from you. And probably the best way to reach out to me is at Caleb J. Mason at Instagram. And uh, my DMs are open. So I would just love to hear from you. Some of your takeaways from the conversation as well. And if there's something in particular that you would love us to cover on the podcast, you can just go ahead and let me know that way. Or if something really stood out to you um, from a previous episode, I would love to hear from you as well. So thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.